Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. In a new essay written by our featured guest for this episode of On the Wing Podcast. And that guest is Ted Cook, the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership and a former United States Fish and Wildlife Service endangered species biologist. In that essay, Ted writes the following. We're almost done ignoring the slow motion loss of Southern Great Plains prairie ecosystems. Why? Because they're almost gone. And the lesser prairie chicken, the enduring, iconic, wild prairie grouse found only in the largest remaining landscapes there is almost gone too. Sadly, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is poised to list the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act any day now. Today, we put our focus of this episode of On the Wing podcast on America's lesser prairie chickens. We'll talk about the current state of the union for the lesser prairie chicken, a forecast for what an endangered species listing might look like for the bird, and explore ways our organization, along with our partners at the North American Grouse Partnership, USDA, and state agencies can turn the tide for prairie habitat and lessers in the Great Plains. So without further ado, uh, we've got two guests with us for this episode of On the Wing podcast. Ron Leathers, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's chief conservation officer, did a podcast with Ron about a year ago, maybe a little better than a year ago now when, when Ron earned the role of chief conservation officer, the first ever person to hold that title with the our organization. And Ted Cook is our other featured guest, the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership, and as I mentioned, a retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service endangered species biologist. Two perfect people to have on for this um, for this conversation about lesser prairie chicken. So without further ado, we'll, we'll uh, have you guys each introduce yourself. We'll start with Ted. Uh, Ted, I, I just read your words back to you, which is probably off, often an odd odd thing to hear somebody else put your uh, put your words in their voice. How'd I do? You did great. And you're right. It's incredibly awkward, especially if you ever see yourself on television. I I did that once and every time I've avoided it since. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just we just released a podcast that uh, only a second time ever that we we recorded for video. And uh, I've started working out at 6 a.m. every morning. <laughs> I've uh, I've packed out a few extra COVID pounds I didn't anticipate. So, <laughs> well, for your audience, I think you look pretty good, Bob. The, the gym is working out for you, right? The weight weight's just falling away. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Tell us what you know where you grew up. Uh, a little bit of your your career tra- trajectory, and um, you know, you gave us a sneak peek of. Uh, your beautiful compound there in Idaho. So yeah. you, you can lead us uh, lead us to where you are today. But let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? All right. So I uh, grew up in Connecticut in a little town called Stamford, Connecticut, just outside of New York City. My dad took the train to Manhattan every day for 30 years. Mm. And uh, I would ride my bike three miles in the dark to go fishing. And I'd get my friends to go with me once and they would never go again. And I couldn't understand why. And it wasn't until I, w- I was 40 years old that my sister-in-law helped me realize that I was the strange one <laughs> mm-hmm. riding my bike three miles in the dark to go fishing when I was <laughs> 14 years old, right? But I just love the outdoors. So uh, I dreamed of living and working in the West as a biologist and having a beautiful wife and 2.3 children. And uh, <laughs> I was managed to live the dream with a 30-year career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as an endangered species biologist. Uh, my wife and I retired, moved back to a little town called Garden Valley, just an hour north of Boise, 
uh, where we just built our forever home and are busy living happily ever after. Ah, it's gorgeous. I, I'm curious, you said 2.3 kids. How'd you work out the 0.3? Are those bird dogs? Dogs, cats, yes. Bird dogs, cats. Uh, herps. I'm a big herp guy. I love snakes and turtles. And Do you have pet reptiles and amphibians? I don't. I had them for a long uh, time. In fact, I was president of the Idaho Herpetological Society for some time when I lived here 20 years ago. So. Wow. So if uh, folks were playing podcast bingo at home, they weren't expecting to be able yeah. to mark off that one. You know, like so many of your listeners, I'm sure. I mean, to me, every hunter and angler... Mm is a, a biologist in their own right. And that's the way I was, right? I grew up fishing. I didn't have the chance to hunt until I put myself through hunter ed at age 18 and shot a canned pheasant in Connecticut. And mm. then I moved to Idaho and lived the dream, right? But uh, but yeah, I mean, all of us who love to hunt and fish, uh, who doesn't think a snake is cool, right? So. Yeah, right on. Well, we're going to lean heavy on your uh, specialty being an endangered species biologist through the course of this podcast. So, so that'll come back around, as you know, we'll talk about that in depth, but before we dive in, uh, for folks that didn't hear the episode dedicated exclusively to uh, Ron's uh, earning the, the chief conservation officer title. And I, I'd suggest folks go back and listen to that because it's interesting to see sort of Ron's path from Wyoming to South Dakota to, to a, an accounting dope, as Howard, <laughs> Howard says. Howard would say. So Ron's an interesting guy. You know, he's got a biology degree. He's been a farm bill biologist, has an MBA, um, really, really diverse background and, and has crafted the vision of our organization's kind of conservation operations um, endeavors forward for both pheasants, quail, and, and all upland birds. So I, I won't steal your introduction, Rod. I just set you up there. I think you just bit. covered it, Bob. I know, I'm I not sure of, what else is to say. <laughs> but go back and listen to the full hour, but give, give, a, give a short overview. Yeah, if we could get Ted to go listen to that full hour, that would double the number of people that have listened to that podcast, probably. <laughs> Ted and my mom have listened to it. Uh, no, it's a you know, I, I've uh, been with this organization for just shy of 20 years. I think Bobby and I started on the same day um, mm. back in 2003, uh, but been in a number of roles uh, with the organization. I'm a field biologist at heart, uh, grew up out west as well. So Ted kind of grew up east and went west and I did the complete opposite. Uh, <laughs> I grew up uh, in Wyoming, uh, got a got a degree from the University of Wyoming in, in wildlife biology and moved out to Washington, D.C. To, to become a policy guy for a number of years. And then bounced around a little bit, uh, went back to Nebraska, uh, did some policy work in Nebraska, uh, started as a farm bill biologist with Pheasants Forever when we started that program in 2003 in South Dakota, uh, got an opportunity to, to move to the Twin Cities. Uh, my wife and I were able to move there 2004, I believe. Um, and then, well, I guess before that, I had done a master's degree in, in wildlife at South Dakota State. So kind of all over the all over the country here chasing birds and, and chasing a wildlife uh, uh, career moved to the move the twin cities took on a finance role for a while howard did his best to beat every bit of biologist out of me but it didn't work uh, <laughs> and so a few years later i uh, went back got an mba and was able to to get my current role as a chief conservation officer that's the the best time of my life i'm having a ball in this role uh you know since that first podcast we've done a heck of a lot of work here yeah. and it's just been it's been a joy to to help lead this group of people uh, you know if you haven't met if you haven't met i'm gonna i'm gonna plug somebody else's podcast here a little bit but um you know i heard a great quote uh from dr mark mcconnell a couple of weeks ago as i listened to the gamekeeper podcast and he said uh I've never met a quail forever biologist that didn't love their job. And that's absolutely the case. This is a passionate group of people and we're lucky to have them. Yeah. Right on. Right. On. And, you know, we've talked about on some other podcasts, we're now um, the number two employer of biologists in the entire country behind only the U S fish and wildlife service, only one that's employer. You're right. Isn't it? I mean, it's just incredible <laughs> that, yeah, yeah go it's, ahead. it's not amazing. I mean, now that you say it, that makes sense. I just never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable and it's a badge of honor for us now. Yes. And it, it, it certainly 
speaks to the fact that this organization is guided by science. And you know, ultimately, that, that makes for a fitting transition of why we're here today. Um, we want, you know, we're we're pheasants forever, we're quail forever, but we, you know, we we love all upland birds, and our mission is upland habitat. Um, and we work with um, all sorts of partners from federal agencies to state agencies. To uh, Ted, I know you sit on the uh, uh, National Board of Directors for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and we work real closely with our friends at BHA. We work closely with our friends at the Rough Grouse Society, and you also the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership. And, and that intersection of North American Grouse Partnership and your role as an endangered species biologist brings us to the conversation today about the lesser prairie chicken. And I, I've thought about this in different stages. And it, so the place I want to start is just the basics of the biology of the lesser prairie chicken for folks that you know, there's, there's an awful lot of our listeners in the upper Midwest that are probably familiar with greater prairie chickens. You know, they hunt Fort Pier or, um, you know, they, they've seen prairie chickens in Illinois, uh, but they, they maybe aren't quite familiar with what makes a lesser different than a greater. So let's, let's start with just some fundamentals. Um, tell us a little bit about the lesser from a biology perspective and how that relates to greater. Sounds great. So uh, there's, there's not a huge difference, obviously, uh, just by the name. Uh, there's other uh, closely related species, uh, the Atwater's prairie chicken in coastal Texas, which unfortunately is functionally extinct in the wild. The only reason it still exists on this planet is because of captive breeding. And then the heath hen is the Eastern prairie chicken, which has been completely extinct for over a century. Hmm. And so, and in fact, I'll just set the stage a little more broadly than that. Uh, the grouse partnership, we include all 12 North American grouse species. We focus on the four prairie grouse species, primary prairie grouse species left. So that's greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, also sharp tails and sage grouse. Uh, we're more particularly focused on lesser prairie chickens right now because they're on the tip of the spear. Mm. Heath hens are completely gone. Atwaters are functionally gone, trying to reintroduce them, but prairie grouse are very difficult, which brings me back to this this greater and lesser uh, difference. So all these prairie grouse depend on complex social structures, multiple leks, males and females trading and interacting among leks uh, on a large landscape, mm. which requires a lot of individuals. When you drop below a certain population size, it's not like hanging on to the last wolverine where you get another wolverine and you make, you know, you make a new one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need a lot of prairie grouse, you know, greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie sharpies. And the efforts to reintroduce any of these prairie grouse species are often vexed by the challenges that you need such a large landscape full of healthy populations and so many individuals reintroduced. Because when you reintroduce individuals, they're naive. They can't avoid predators as well. You lose too many. You don't have enough males and enough leks with enough females. And so that's why it's urgent that we stop mm. the decline now. And lessers, greaters, functionally, they're, I'm going to say the same. I'm sure there's biologists out there who beat me up for saying that, right? Mm. Uh, the difference is uh, geographic distribution, genetics, and you know, somewhat in size. That's really okay. it. Um, and so lessers you find from central Kansas to central western Kansas, south through western Oklahoma, northwest Texas, eastern New Mexico, and southeastern Colorado. Graders are, you know, north Kansas and up and, and then over. Okay. And you talked a little bit about having a population large enough to be viable for genetic distribution. Where Do we have a sense of how many birds there are? on the landscape right now? Uh, uh, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies have been, has been saying around 30,000 birds. Uh, the problem is we have less and less habitat each year. And depending on precipitation from year to year, those numbers can trend up and down. Uh, mm. We've been as slow as, as less than 20,000 birds during extreme mm. drought in the past. Uh, looks like extreme drought is taking hold of at least some portion of the range of lesser prairie chickens this year. And it's going to be scary. I, we're, we're, we're probably going to get so low in some parts of the range of lesser prairie chickens that when the rain comes back next year or the year after, or the, whenever it comes back, we won't have enough birds to keep going and we'll continue to lose more of the range. And so that's the problem. People want to look at the upper part of these 
cycles or these curves and say, hey, look, not so bad. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's the lower parts where they blink out. And uh, in, the, in the blinking out, it's, it's less genetic. It's more social. Hmm. If you don't have enough birds in one spot to do this trading and back and forth and this lecking and displaying and let females choose and go off and nest and bump out and create a new lek, um, that's when they blink out. And that's what's so hard to recreate once they're gone. That's why it's urgent we act now to, to stop the loss. Yeah, if you want to... If you want a prairie chicken map right now to figure out what the, where the those birds are located, just go look at the drought monitor map for those five states. I mean, it mm. is almost identical where the severe drought range is. It, it almost perfectly overlaps with the lesser prairie chicken range. And that's that's what we saw five years ago uh, when the, the chicken last had its lowest you know population counts. Is those places are just incredibly dry. Um, I was in New Mexico a couple of years ago and, and it didn't look terribly dry. And my biologist encouraged me to go kick a piece of, a piece of grass and it just clumped over and mm. there wasn't any soil moisture to hold it anymore. Uh, this is a, it's a, it's a pretty dry area down there to begin with. And it's historically dry right now. And it's on fire in lots of places in New Mexico sure. right now. It sure is. Uh, Southeastern Colorado, one of the landowners we're working with there uh, had, Gosh, 9,000 of his 14,000 acres burn. Oh. And he said he went out the next morning and he was looking and he couldn't see what was going on. He, he thought, because the ground was black the night before and then it looked all white. And he thought, I, I thought that burned, but maybe it's okay. He got closer. The black had blown away and it was down to the white sandy soil blowing in the wind towards oh, Kansas. That's how mm. dry it is. <clears throat> so it's it's that double whammy that we often talk about with you know you can't control the weather but we can't control habitat well in, in the case of the lesser prairie chicken they're getting double whammy by weather we can't control being a drought and an extended drought and the habitat being you know just the intensity of which that land is being used just continues to escalate that, it, visually can you describe like what ideal habitat looks like for the lesser prairie chicken? Because again, our audience is going to be thinking about pheasant habitat or quail habitat. And, you know, pheasant habitat tends to be taller grass, quail, sort of a mixed woods, grass, savanna, sort of lesser prairie chicken, much like sharp tails and greater. I mean, it does look, dramatically different than what you might be used to if you're a pheasant hunter from Nobles County, Minnesota. So I was just talking to our grouse partnerships policy advisor about this two weeks ago, and we boiled it down to this. It wants to be native grasses and forbs that covers 80% of a volleyball sitting on the ground when you're standing 12 feet away. Mm. So put a volleyball down in the native grasses and forbs, back up 12 feet, look at that volleyball, you should only be able to see 20% of it. Mm. That's what a chicken wants. They don't want a lot more and they don't want less. Mm. And so you're exactly right. Pheasants want thicker habitat than most of our native prairie grouse want. Yeah. And one of the problems, and we've talked about this um, on a variety of different topics, particularly podcast topics focused on the Great Plains. One of the Habitat problems for quail, for pheasants, and for prairie grouse is the encroachment of eastern red cedars. And, you know, if you want to cover up that volleyball, you know, take grass out of the equation and grow cedars there. And yeah. you, won't, you won't even be able to see the, the net, right? Yeah. So that's a major issue for, for um, lessers, isn't it? You know, thanks, uh, Bob, for pointing that out because uh, I kind of... Uh, you know, assume that in my mind, but it's definitely worth articulating how much prairie grouse cannot stand tall structures. Uh, and, and eastern red cedar is one of the biggest threats on the eastern part of the range of lesser prairie chickens, like it is for all prairie grouse. Mm -hmm. um, power lines, wind turbines, uh, any of those structures, you know, anything taller than, say, six feet will begin to displace chickens. And a whole swath of super tall wind turbines will displace chickens for miles. Mm. We used to have a 
we had a just a biological rule of thumb when we were doing uh, planning for pheasants. There was anything anything more than 10 feet tall, you could count on 10 times the height of that tree, eliminating your nesting cover around it. So you got a 50 foot tall tree that's out in the middle of nowhere, you're gonna lose, you know, whatever the math is on that, but mm -hmm. uh, 500 feet in a circle around there times 3.14, and you, you've lost that number of acres of, of nesting. Prairie grouse are more like 100 times mm. um, or more in some of those situations. And you can eliminate entire sections of habitat as nesting cover by putting one telephone pole right in the middle of it. I didn't know that about pheasants. Yeah. Exactly right. I didn't know that about pheasants, and but it makes sense. And you're exactly right about prairie chickens, all of them, all of four species. And, and some folks will argue, like I, I think about sharp tails in Barron's country of northern Wisconsin. There's you know sharp tails that live in you know, scrub oak areas and parts of North Dakota that is much more shrubby. And, you know, I've, I talked with um, a biologist, Susan Feligi, a researcher on North Dakota, who's on our board. Sharp tails can tend to be a little bit more tolerant to shrub. But when you talk chickens, whether it's greater or lesser, even, you know, they, their tolerance level is almost zero. It doesn't matter what state you're talking about. To this point, Ted, like lessers, you know, shrubs, um, eastern red cedars, you know, an oak tree. It's like they just can't can't stand being around anything that's vertical, can they? That's right. And thank you for bringing that up with Sharpies. They're they're more relatively more tolerant of the four perigraph species. They definitely can do well with shrubs. Even lesser prairie chickens in New Mexico uh, can uh, thrive in areas with shinnery oak, which is a very mm. low-growing shrub. Sage grouse, which we also call prairie grouse, by definition live in shrub habitat. They need sagebrush, mm -hmm. which is a shrub, right? right? Uh, but all of them are sensitive to, to a structure a raptor can perch on to hunt mm. from. That's the idea. That's what scientists believe is kind of a, a driving fear of tall stuff is raptors yeah right um all right so i'm going to transition us here to sort of the meaty topic um and, and that's what an endangered species listing could mean to the lesser prairie chicken so as we record this um we're expecting some sort of an announcement from the u.s fish and wildlife service because legally they have to based on um, a statement that was made a year ago. So I'll read, on June 1st, 2021, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed that the lesser prairie chicken be ruled as a threatened species in the bird's northern range, the states of Kansas and Colorado, while being listed as endangered and the bird's southern range in the states of New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. So because of that June of 21 statement, we're anticipating any day now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is going to make a formal decision about a listing for the, the lesser prairie chicken. What? Uh, let's start with that statement on June 1st of 2021, Ted. You were a biologist for the endangered species biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service. What's that statement mean or what's that ruling set the stage for? What's that mean to you? Yeah, so let's maybe let's go back in time a little bit to uh, early 20 teens when the Fish and Wildlife Service first listed chickens. Uh, industry groups sued and won. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service delisted chickens. Then environmental groups sued and won to get the service to, to reevaluate, and which resulted mm. in the proposed rule that you just referenced from June 1st, 2021. And so what that means is the Fish and Wildlife Service in June 1st, 2021 said, we think the species warrants listing. Here's how we propose to list it. We want comments. Mm. So they go through a year-long process, and then they either come out with a final rule listing the species or they say that they've changed their mind and they think listing is no longer warranted. My gut tells me, my experience tells me, my common mm -hmm. sense tells me they're going to list lesser prairie chickens under the endangered species. Act. They are just too far gone. I mean, 
remember, they thought they warranted listening almost a decade ago, and they actually did listen them a decade ago, mm. and things are worse off now than they are then. Everyone acknowledges that. So I think they're going to list it. Uh, I suspect it'll look something like what they proposed, and so for the sake of this conversation, we'll just go with that. Um, if they chose to not list it, I'd be absolutely flabbergasted. Mm. Now, because this is part of the settlement agreement with the environmental groups that sued them to compel them to, to act, they are compelled to act by a deadline, and that was supposed to be June 1st of this year, so last uh, last week, right? Um, but uh, they haven't done that yet, but I, and I, I've been calling and bugging them because uh, I'm coordinating a group of uh, lesser prairie chicken landowner leaders who want chicken conservation on their lands that they own in the range of lesser prairie chicken. Beautiful group of humans, by the way. Um, and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has promised me that they'll brief this group. And so I've been in contact with them, and the service tells me it'll be you know, any day now. So we're just mm. waiting. Mm. And functionally, explain what threatened means versus endangered. Um, you know, what's that, what's that mean for a bird hunter? How should they interpret those two definitions? Well, uh, for bird hunters, the difference doesn't mean much because all hunting was stopped for this species, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, but here's the problem. Hunters are not the threat. Mm -hmm. The threat is habitat loss and fragmentation. So even though we stopped hunting them 20 years ago, you know what? They continue to go down. You know why? Because hunters are not the threat. It's habitat loss. And so we've continued to lose habitat. Numbers go down. But, but the, the difference fundamentally is under the Endangered Species Act, there are nine take prohibitions. So you may not shoot, pursue, hunt, capture, trap, wound, harm, harass. I left one or two out. Uh, and, and if you list a species as endangered, all nine take prohibitions, prohibitions automatically take effect. Hmm. If you list as threatened, if the Fish and Wildlife Service lists as threatened, they can choose which take prohibitions apply and which mm. do not. Mm. And so they write what is called a 4D, Section 4D of the Endangered Species Act, a 4D rule. So, for example, the service proposed to exempt from take prohibitions those ag lands that have already been broken out and are being cultivated. Now, this caused some confusion because people say, wait, breaking out native prairie to cultivation is bad. For lesser prairie chickens, and it is. Mm -hmm. They did not exempt lands that might be broken out in the future, only those lands that were broken out in the past, because lesser prairie chickens might live on prairie edges adjacent to ag fields and use those ag fields for food food source, right? Mm -hmm. You know, corn, they want to eat corn, they go eat corn. And so in that case, those landowners might risk harming chickens. Let's say they go in and run a combine and chop up a chicken. And so the service said, look, no, don't be afraid of that. Don't worry about that. It's bad, but you got to make your living, you know, and we're going to be flexible in that way. So that's an example of how the service proposed to apply a threatened, a more flexible threatened listing to lesser prairie chickens, whereas where it's endangered, they could not offer that uh, exemption see. from the prohibition. Okay. So right now, categorically, they, they're treated as threatened at the moment, correct? No, uh, they're still managed by the states. They are, okay. Uh, as a species of concern that's not being hunted. Uh, and there, and now the federal, some federal agencies, the like USDA agencies have farm bill programs. They see this train coming. They work proactively with a service to develop a, what's called a conference opinion or biological opinion that says, Hey, landowners, you can participate in our USDA farm bill conservation title programs. And if you do, then you're in compliance with the ESA. So, there's that kind of, I don't know, upfront gotcha. regulatory assurance thing, but, but technically they are not, they're a state managed species or there are no legal protections yet. Okay. So federal, federal legal protection. So if this announcement comes, that does change the game. It takes it a bit out of the, the state's hands and it becomes uh, the purview of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service completely. Yes. And, and, and uh, all of us as hunters should think about that. Here's, I mean, when settlers came across the sea of grass, that's the Great Plains, when Native Americans lived in the sea of grass and they fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens, mm. they never could have imagined the day mm -hmm. when all we would have left, left is little postage stamp pieces of prairie 
and an endangered species. Mm -hmm. Think about that. 150 years ago, that was unimaginable. That's where we find ourselves. And so yeah. as hunters, here we had the species that once was common, that we that we hunted, you know, that families hunted, that families have traditions around hunting. And now it's a going to be an endangered species. It's just unacceptable that we let these things uh, get to this point, especially when we have tools at hand like Farm Bill Conservation Programs. Uh, to to try to work to uh, to save these last remnants, and there's a lot of passionate landowners out there that believe in in conserving these values as well. That that want these programs to work better for them, to turn the tide of the loss of these native prairie ecosystems, and that's what the North American Grouse Partnership and Pheasants Forever, is like what our our most important allies, Pheasants Forever. That's what we're working to try to achieve right now. So I, I'm going to go to that here in a moment, talk about these conservation programs and the tools. Um, I, I just want to ask one follow-up about splitting. So some states being listed as endangered, some states being listed as threatened. I'm assuming that creates some added flexibility um, for those in the states where it's listed as threatened in states of Colorado and Kansas. Um, any anything that's worth pointing to by the distinction of threatened versus endangered in in Kansas and Colorado? Yeah, so I mentioned that uh, existing ag field exemption, right? That's one that would apply in Kansas and Colorado, but not in other states. And then the other one that the service proposed is uh, uh, habitat enhancement activity, so prescribed burning. You know. Historically, mm. prairies burned. That's why there were prairies. That's mm -hmm. why there were not eastern red cedars. Uh, that's why grouse thrived more in the past. It's increasingly hard to burn. Hopefully, we're going to be doing more of that as we go ahead in the future. But that's another example of what uh, the service proposed to exempt from take prohibition. So if you burn a piece of prairie and kill chickens, that's okay. You can still do that with an endangered species. It just requires more process to get there. Gotcha. Okay. You have to All do right. this conservation process. <clears throat> so... As I think about endangered species, there's a there's a saying, shoot, shovel, and shut up. And it's been written about in novels. Uh, I think about the Joe Joe Pickett series, uh, C.J. Box books. Um, I, you know, it's 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 a common saying, and, and what it means, you know, if you're a landowner and you discover that you have an endangered species on your property, you shoot it. You bury it and you keep it to yourself before a big government can come and tell you what to do about your land. It's the it's that perception of regulation um, connected to the Endangered Species Act and, and big government reach. You're an endangered species biologist for a large portion of your career. Tell us tell us a little bit about you know the regulatory implications for landowners. Um, should this decision come down as you anticipate? Yeah, great question. And so that that's a real thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. And if I were a landowner, especially if I did not know about the ESA, I would be worried too, because there are regulations that are coming that protect the habitat of this soon-to-be uh, listed species, right? Now, the, the, the way that regulatory... The, the regulatory environment is unique to each species. And I'll just start out by saying that knowing what I know, if I was a landowner with lesser prairie chickens, I would not be very concerned about the threat of regulation. But easy for me to say, right? Because I don't sure. know sure. chicken habitat. But the reason I say that is because 95% of these habitats are privately owned. The Fish and Wildlife Service, but if only by the sheer uh, scope of the challenge, could never recover lesser prairie chickens through regulation. It just ain't going to happen. But the other thing is we have all of these positive policy tools, the incentive tools like farm bill programs. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife has their own partners for fish and wildlife program. State agencies have similar incentive programs. And we have other opportunities as well to get funding to incentivize conservation on private lands. And so it's 99% likely that the environment that the service is going to cultivate around grouse, uh, lesser prairie chicken recovery, is going to be incentive-based more than regulatory-based. Still, at the end of the day, the threat exists. And usually those headline stories that you read, my, my experience as an endangered species biologist is if you have a landowner that's serious about 
making their money raising cows or whatever it is that they're doing on their private lands, they cannot afford to be ideological or uh, take foolish chances. And so they'll meet with an endangered species biologist like I was and say, hey, look, you know, what's the need here? What do I got to do? And frankly, 95% of them say, you know, I kind of like chickens. I'd like them to be around. Uh, I want native grasslands anyway, right? I mean, right. They, they, they might not admit that too much, but but they, they, when you spend enough time developing relationships, 95% of these landowners are beautiful humans who want the same things that we all do. Nobody, none of them want to see lesser prairie chickens go extinct. And so that creates the environment for success. And when that environment exists, success is almost assured for the landowner, maybe less so for the species, but but this, the service has no incentive to try to in, uh, enact a regulatory scheme on that person. Where a lot of train wrecks happen is uh, you'll have people who don't really make their money off living, uh, raising cows. They have an ideological bent against federal regulation. Uh, they behave in ways that are not good for critters. And then a third-party environmental group will see it come in and sue them mm. and win their activities and then that makes the headlines and oh my god the ESA is out of control that's my experience that's my sure. bias um, uh, but but nonetheless what the grouse partnership is doing right now as we speak is creating a group of incredible landowners or leaders who are like the 95% they really make their money raising cows they really care about lesser prairie chickens and they are approaching the federal agencies that's the USDA farm bill program agencies and the fish and wildlife service proactively to say, look, this is what we need as ranchers and as chicken conservationists work with us. And it's very exciting. And that's a terrific transition for Ron, how we plug in, right? I mean, it's just, we, we started this podcast talking about how many biologists we have on the team and those biologists work on voluntary conservation programs for opportunities just like this. Yeah, it's like you're looking at my notes or something, Bob. <laughs> literally just wrote that down. You know, Ted made a, a point earlier that, that I think we need to go back to. And and these are large landscape birds. These are birds that you got to be able to see 80% of that volleyball, right? They mm -hmm. don't like the, the cover as dense as a pheasant does. So it, if pheasants are biologically not that difficult to raise, go plant grass, leave it alone, and you're going to get birds. Um Prairie chickens are something different. You don't get 80% of the volleyball showing unless you remove some of that grass. And I think we we kind of ran through that a little bit too fast. These birds need some of that vegetation removed to be able to, to work through that. I mean, they've got to, it gets too dense for their chicks. It's too tall for them to be able to lek in. They've got to be able to show off for the ladies when they're out there booming. Um, and if, it, if that cover doesn't have a place where they can go dance and show off and strut and gobble and boom and do all the cool things that these birds do, they're just not going to be there. And mm. so, you know, you got to remove that grass and kind of the most efficient way to remove that grass is to run it through the rumen of a cow. Um, and so those folks that are out there that are grazing are doing what needs to be done for, for prairie chicken. Um, and they, a lot of times these, you know, Ted mentioned it as well. These are folks that grew up listening to the sound of that boom. And if you, if you haven't, run a YouTube video of a lesser prairie chicken boom. I'll tell you what you need to do. Run a lesser prairie chicken boom and a greater prairie chicken boom back to back. And you'll it's unbelievable how different the sound of those two birds are. But both of them are very, very cool and something that you need to listen to before you're I mean the minute you get off this podcast. Uh, because it's a it's a very cool sound. But those landowners grew up listening to that in the spring. It, it's part of the reason that they live there. Um, sure. You know, they're, they're growing cows there, but they live in that landscape mm. because they love all the parts of that landscape. And, you know, I, Bob, you, you probably listen to me overuse this, but I'm all about societal and, and social pressure and, and communities and interactions between individuals. And that that drives habitat decisions in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, these folks just they're passionate. They care about this bird and, and they just need a little bit of help. And that's where our biologists come in. Yeah. Um, given that that little bit of technical assistance to say, hey, if you if you graze this way, if you knock this one paddock down a little bit further before you open up the gate and move them to the next place, we can get these chicks off. And once that's done, go graze that one and leave this other paddock alone to to get the second nest or the the second nest attempt out of the other birds, right? So, 
Um, we're looking where her those where those lecking sites are. We're we're trying to make sure they get grazed down heavy so the birds can be seen. We're looking at the place where they're building nests and trying to leave a little bit more cover there and use that cover later in the year. But you know, we sort of overuse that term good for the good for the bird, good for the herd, but that applies here. Um, you gotta graze that cover to get it down so you can see part of the volleyball. And that's what PF and QF biologists are doing is working with those landowners to help them learn how best to graze that cover. Yeah, that's a really, really strong point to emphasis, emphasize. I also think about, you know, maybe two years ago, USDA went through a rebranding and they rolled out this term working lands for wildlife. And to me, they're like, the top of the pyramid for the rebranding is the lesser prairie chicken icon, right? Like, cause you talk about, um, you know, you, managing these grasslands. So you see 80%, uh, so it, the tip of that volleyball is visible. You got to run cattle through it. That's working lands, right? It's not, it's you're raising beef and you're raising prairie chicken habitat when you're those, when those, Cattle are essentially doing what the, the American bison did once upon a time. Is it accurate representation? Definitely, definitely. And the worst possible scenario for a lesser prairie chicken is that that one big intact landowner that manages that operation as one big grazing system mm -hmm. goes bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Because when he does or she does, that entire operation gets parceled out into little pieces. And you don't have that big dances with wolves scene where he comes over the top of the hill, right? And there's mm. like one cottonwood tree out in the distance and the rest of it is just grass from sky to sky. These birds need all those prairie grouse, need those big intact landscapes that you can just ride a horse on forever and ever. But if that landowner can't make a go of it, it's going to get turned into ranchettes. It's going to get broken up into a lot of it will get cultivated. There's just a lot of bad outcomes if we can't find ways to keep ranchers on the ranch. Yeah. And for folks that, you know, maybe you live in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, you're listening and you want to be a part of, of uh, the solution here. It's the acronym soup of uh, conservation programs, whether it's, and you can, we have farm bill biologists in many of these places uh, in USDA service centers willing to um, and, and able to sit one-on-one -on -one with landowners and talk about Great Plains Grassland Initiative, Working Lands for Wildlife, the Grasslands um, CRP practice, um, SAFE, State Acres for Wildlife Enhancement practice. There's EQIP. I mean, you could just go on and on bulleted <laughs> list of acronyms. One thing you, as we, as we prep for this, one point you made, Ron, as a particularly um, poignant connection between bobwhite quail and lessers. Make that for our audience. Yeah, so this landscape, there's a lot of overlap here uh, between lesser prairie chicken and, and bobwhite quail. So our members will ask me sometimes, you know, why are we, why are we playing around with lesser prairie chickens when we're pheasants forever and quail forever? I got two answers to that. First one is because it's the right thing to do. We speak for uplands and we speak for the birds that occupy it and, and somebody's got to be there for us and that's what we do. And second, lesser prairie chicken habitat is quail habitat. You're going to find an awful lot of overlap between those two species. Um, and, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're, you're down in Georgia or you're in the deep south, you're saying, well, quail are edge species. Mm. You know, this is a whole different concept. That's just not true. I mean, ed, ed, quail are edge species in a lot of places because that's all we leave them. Where mm. uh, you know we've done something to every other piece of the habitat that's out there, and we've left them the edges, we've left them the tree lines. You know, Bob, you mentioned earlier that quail habitat is is sort of savanna-looking habitat with trees and grasses. Quail don't need trees. Mm. It's just kind of our mental process that quail mm -hmm. have to have trees. Some of the best quail hunts you'll ever go on are in Kansas, where it's just grass from from skyline to skyline. Um, and so those birds are overlapping. These are big landscape birds as well. You just you don't think of quail that way, but they're there. And we're mm. doing lesser prairie chicken work because the chicken needs it and because quail need it. So as start to transition towards a close here, Ted, I, we're trying to balance 
pessimism and optimism here, right? You get, you know, lesser prairie chicken in the prospect of being listed as an endangered species is a bad thing. I mean, that, that it, to your, your essay that I read to start this conversation, you know, we've let the Southern Great Plains deteriorate on our watch, on our, on our generation's watch. And as, as that Southern Great Plains grasslands has deteriorated, the, the species that need that ecosystem have um, plummeted. And the iconic species, a keystone species of that, uh, of that ecosystem, the lesser prairie chicken has fallen off a cliff as you say, I mean, you know, people moved west in this country, surviving by eating lessers. That's not the case anymore, right? They, that, that population has fallen off the cliff. So it's a very bad scenario. Yet, you write in that same essay, we have the tools. We know the science to turn the tide. So give us a little bit of hope. I mean, Endangered species is a bad thing in terms of for the, the prospects for that species, but it's not unheard of for species to come off that list. Uh, the eagle, the Kirtland's warbler, um, American alligator. Paint us some hope for the future, Ted. Happy to, and it, it's true, it does exist. I. And again, it comes back to this, you know, 95% are private lands where they're left. They're usually ranch lands. And exactly as Ron said, raising, uh, ranching plays an important role. In, in fact, in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed rule, they specifically say that grazing is important. Now, overgrazing, bad. Mm -hmm. Undergrazing, bad. Grazing the right amount, good. Who can help the landowners understand, understand the right amount? Uh, pheasants forever biologists, right? And others, you know, fish wild, uh, biologists can, can help do that. It's the covering the 80% of the volleyball and only seeing the top 20%. That's that's kind of the, the simplest way you can visualize it. So so here's the deal. Um, our, our strongest remaining population, the reason why lesser prairie chickens are proposed to be listed as threatened in Kansas and not endangered is because 30 years ago, uh, the CRP program was implemented broadly and intensively and successfully enough requiring planting of native grasses and forbs mm. that today the greatest stronghold left for lesser prairie chickens is on those CRP lands mm. that are expiring as we speak. So we've done this before. We've used farm bill programs to increase lesser prairie chicken uh, numbers 30 years ago. Let's start there. Let's mm. just do that again for starters in each of the five states. You know, that alone, right, gives us a lot of hope. We've already done this with this species in its range. So let's do that again. But here's the other things that are. And so that's why, you know, we're forming this landowner group with support of Pheasants Forever and others to advocate to the agencies. Because you think, well, agencies, you've done this before. Just, you know, snap your fingers, do it again. It's not that easy. And, and I, being a former Fed, I, I get it. It isn't that easy, right? And so that's why we need these landowners and, and groups like, you know, major groups like Pheasants Forever and their members to provide uh, support and to advocate to the USDA agencies and to their elected representatives for better support for these beautiful landowners who are frustrated and, and trying to do the right thing. And then there's other reasons for hope out there as well. Uh, this year, we hope to see passed in Congress the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would provide funding to the state agencies to conserve non-game species. Now, think about it. Lesser prairie chickens used to be a species that you could hunt. State agencies could spend their uh, Pittman-Robertson dollars on lesser prairie chickens. Mm. Once they stopped hunting, they couldn't spend those dollars on them anymore, so you have less dollars for conservation. That's mm. wrong. Mm -hmm. RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, helps plug that hole and empower states to get back in the game more. I mean, they've always been in the game, but sure. to have more money to get back in the game more strongly to help do their part to conserve. And then lastly, I'll point out that we've got uh, in the pipeline another uh, important piece of legislation that we're trying to get introduced to Congress right now, uh, looking for Republican co-sponsors. This is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Think about this. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't say this right up front, Bob, but Prairie ecosystems are the most threatened ecosystem 
on the continent. Prairies are the most threatened ecosystem on the continent. Over the last 50 years, uh, a study that looked at bird species decline across all of North America, the ecosystem type that suffered the greatest decline in bird numbers, 40% loss of birds, is prairies. Mm. We've lost more birds and prairies anywhere else. You know the only ecosystem type that did not experience a decline? Wetlands. wetlands. You know why? The North American Wetlands Conservation Act and groups like Ducks Unlimited and others that have just done a terrific job doing what? Conserving habitat. Mm. There's our other example of hope. We've done it with ducks. We can do it with, with prairie grouse. We've got examples where we've already done these things in the past. We've got tools in the toolbox currently that we need to take out, sharpen, and redeploy. And we need to give us new tools like RAWA and Grasslands Act. Yeah. Yeah. Very well stated. And, and folks can, you know, we've done podcasts specifically on Recovering America's Wildlife Act, uh, North American Grasslands Act, and uh, 2023 Farm Bills around the corner. So there will be podcasts upcoming there too. Yeah, Ted. Uh, thank you. You are good at your job, Bob. <laughs> I should have said that, <laughs> right? So we're talking to the agencies right now. And I've, we've already told the agency heads, look, you know, the landowners are going to want you to do a suite of things. Some of these things you're going to say yes, some you're going to say maybe, and some you're going to say no because you don't have the statutory authority. 2023 Farm Bill, uh, we're set up perfectly to feed into that to get the kinds of tools and funding that we need to turn the tide. Turn the, turn the tide. Yeah, it really comes at the, if you boil it all down, we have these tools in place, but we need um, augmented funding for you pick your acronym augmented funding to help cover those landowners um, you know doing these conservation practices uh, you know because they got to make a living too right and, right and and the benefits yeah it's gonna these conservation practices will benefit habitat for the lesser prairie chicken but it comes with a whole suite of other things right the entire ecosystem of wildlife that depend on the southern great plains better water quality and we know the status of the aquifer right and in, in the great plains and uh Agalala aquifer is just continuing to decrease right so it, you know hashtag water is life it's connected to the larry the, the lesser prairie chicken soil health um you know cattle um climate resiliency carbon sequestration you know the entirety of things that we care about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you will, right? Food, water, air, place to live. It's all, if you boil it back down, what the lesser prairie chicken needs is what the people in the Southern Great Plains need for a healthy way of life in the future. So I'll get off my, my diatribe and we'll go to, we'll go to uh, closing thoughts. Um, we'll start with Ted and Ted, I, as you think about your closing thought, tell us just a little bit um, as well about the North American Grouse Partnership. And if folks want to learn a little bit more about North American Grouse Partnership, how can our listeners um, find more about you and, and join the organization? Thank you, uh, Bob. Happy to, let me just say amen to everything you just said, right? And I, I just got to say, these private landowners, they raise beef and have a commercial market to sell it, but they provide us Americans with so much more. Clean water, healthy soils, clean air, carbon sequestration, but they don't have commercial markets to sell those products. That's why we have programs like Farm Bill Conservation Title to pay them for those. We need to pay them enough. And like Ron said, we need to keep them in business because they go out of business uh, and we lose that opportunity. And so uh, that's what the Grouse Partnership does. Uh, folks can go to grousepartners.org for more information, join our organization, and especially please, please advocate to your local USDA agencies, that's NRCS and Farm Services Agency and Fish and Wildlife Service, and especially to your elected representatives, especially to your federal elected representatives, to ensure that farm bill programs are adequate to do the job to pass RAWA and the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And uh, and Grouse Partnership, really, we're a small uh, but mighty organization. <laughs> we are a science-based policy advocacy group, but we really, uh, our muscle uh, comes in partnership with others, first like these landowners in the southwestern Great Plains, and then also with incredibly competent and uh, 
knowledgeable, capable, experienced partners like Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and all of your members. And so uh, my appeal is directly to all of all of your folks listening to this podcast to put their oar in the water and help. And, and let me just, one last thought. I, t- I talked to so many upland bird hunters that love to hunt pheasants in the Midwest because they don't have prairie grouse. And they dream of the opportunity of, you know, hunting sharpies in the northern plains of Montana or, or coming to, you know, southeastern Idaho to hunt sage grouse. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and with sage grouse, we're down to being able to take one bird per day mm. in sage grouse. Sage grouse are following lesser prairie. Pretty soon there will be no more sage grouse season, right? But I, I talk to these people like in Iowa who are going to drive out, like friends are going to drive out to eastern Wyoming to just to be able to shoot a sage grouse. That's how valuable Pheasants Forever Quail for member, members find these native grouse to be. They're an adventure. They're a dream. <laughs> well, let's not let it be that way. Let's yeah. let's make more of them on the landscape. Let's make it so we can hunt lesser prairie chickens again. Um, so I, as you can tell, I got totally fired up. Thank you for the opportunity to be fired up. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, at least Ted's passionate, right? Yeah. yeah. In, in the, uh, they all live in beautiful places, too. So it's part of the entire experience, yeah. the, the bird and then... You know, you live in Minnesota and you go get to experience Idaho and it just opens your your worldview of all these amazing places that upland birds live and and um, just, you know, how special it really is to follow a bird dog and and learn about them. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Sage grouse are my favorite. Bird <laughs> uh, Ron, closing thoughts. They're all yours. You know, I just... I, first off, I just want to thank Ted. I mean, he's he's the smartest guy in the room every time I've got him around, and and I appreciate him coming in to talk a lot about uh, endangered species listing and the act. And, you know, that's a scary thing for an awful lot of people. It's a particularly scary thing, like you said, if you're a producer trying to make a living and you've got a threat of regulation, that's, that can be a little bit nerve-wracking. But, you know, the great news is those tools are there, and, and I think everybody – at the service, everybody in the federal family and the states all know that the tools to recover this bird are, are are the same things that we need to do to keep people on the landscape. And so, to those landowners that that you know you need to hear that, that's where I think the services heads at. That's certainly where Pheasants Forever and, and Quail Forever's heads at. Um, and and you know, voluntary my, tools, right? You can they can participate. Voluntary, voluntary. tools, absolutely. Uh, you know, keep in mind the purpose of an ESA listing is to recover that population, right? And to get the bird back off of mm-hmm. the, the the list. And then there are ways that they've done that. There's species that, that have seen that done. And, and I think chickens are could be right up there. And so, you know, we're going to have our biologists out chasing them around, uh, using those acronym soup to, to try to restore uh, these bird populations and these habitats. And, and Bob, you should be proud. I've not used an acronym yet. I think this is probably the first podcast that I've kept it under 10, uh, but I'm going to throw two out there quickly. And it's there. There are two that everybody knows, right? The CRP program is an absolute important tool for lesser prairie chicken. Mm-hmm. It kept chickens alive. Uh, that population, uh, you know, Christian Hagen is a, a lesser prairie chicken scientist. I'm going to take two extra minutes, Bob, but um, here's a lesser prairie chicken scientist. Uh, you know, back when they started the Working Lands program. And and he told me once the reason that these birds are still around is that they were able to move up into those CRP fields that were just to the north end of their range. And they had cover during terrible, terrible drought when those grasslands, you know, landowners had to use the grass they had available to them. They just didn't have an option. But these birds were able to move up into a restored cover in that CRP grassland. So that, that kept those birds um, on the landscape. There's a really cool tool out there right now through the CRP grasslands uh, concept, and this is a working lands tool. It's it's paying landowners to to manage to a uh, a grazing standard. So if a landowner is already doing good stuff, there's not a lot of change to the way that you're going to manage your your grazing lands, but you're going to get a little bit more technical assistance and you're going to get a payment for it. And oh, by the way, there's a a target area right on top of lesser prairie chicken range in, in Western Kansas and Eastern Colorado. So if you live in that space, you've got some tools available to you uh, to get paid to do good stuff for the bird and good stuff for your herd. So those are available out there. And and I'm assuming, you know, folks that are in South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, listening to this, CRP grasslands is available to them 
and it might apply to sharp tails and it might apply to greater prairie chickens. They, you know, we're talking specifically about lessers in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Kansas, Colorado, but a lot of these tools can apply to other species with that require similar habitats. Correct, Ron? Absolutely does. Yep. And the CRP grasslands is available throughout the grassland habitat types here, but I really, really love it for lesser prairie chicken because what we talked about earlier, it helps you keep 80% of that volleyball hidden. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, you're, it's, a, it's a grazing land. It needs to be grazed. Landowners need to make a living, but it gives them the opportunity to make a little bit better living on that and still manage it to that standard that allows that that chicken to exist. And it's just, a, it's a really great tool for this particular use. Right. Okay. Uh, and then that other thing, you, you mentioned it earlier, Bob, um, Great Great Plains Grasslands Initiative, GPGI, because I had to get my second acronym in there. <laughs> um, GPGI uh, is, a, is an incredible tool. Eastern Red Cedar is taking over the grasslands. Um, you know, the, I, I tried to look up the numbers earlier and I couldn't do it, but um, there, was, there was a significant loss of grazing productivity of these lands when you let eastern red cedar come in. It's not just costing habitat, it's costing producers the opportunity to translate that to beef, which translates to dollar bills, which then translates to their kids' education, right? It's this this entire cycle is being lost to this eastern red cedar and and then it's sucking up all the moisture out of the out of the soil profile, not allowing it to go into the grass. All the bad things are happening here. And that's what Great Plains Grass Initiative is trying to do is push that front of trees back to the east where it belongs and, and protect the core of these habitats so that we don't see that invasion. And you're even seeing invasion of trees into the, the sand hills of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Just these incredible intact landscapes are being overrun by trees right now. So those two tools largely available throughout lesser prairie chicken range. And, and that's really what our, our biologists are using. Um, to be that point end of the show and to try to get habitat in the ground. It, it really is remarkable. You know, it's, it's become a, a really popular phrase. What's good for the bird is good for the herd or reverse it, right? What's good for the herd is good for the bird. They're interchangeable. And, and that's really across the, the Great Plains of the United States, what's creating good place for ranchers is creating terrific habitat for all of our favorite upland birds. Yeah, I wonder which way they said it first. Good for the bird, good for the herd, or good for the herd for the bird. It doesn't really matter, but I'd have to go back and ask our friends at NRCS how they, how they envisioned it. But the point's the same. If we need both of them. We need landowners on the landscape. We need cows on the landscape. If we're going to do good things for prairie chickens. So if you're a landowner um, in, in this geography, southeastern Colorado, uh, western Kansas, uh, western Oklahoma, Kind of the panhandle, a big part of Texas, and then um, eastern New Mexico. Your landowner, go into your USDA service center, talk with a biologist. We got a pheasants forever, quail forever biologist. Um, there's lots of voluntary conservation programs that can get you paid to do the right things for the lesser prairie chicken. Um, and it also benefit pheasants and particularly quail. Uh, if you're a bird hunter, um, Number one thing you can do, it doesn't matter where you live in the country, contact your two U.S. senators and your U.S. representative. They control the farm bill. They control payments for these programs. Uh, they control conservation in the country, and we need more tools and more funding for the tools that are there. We got Recovering America's Wildlife Act. We got a 2023 farm bill. We got all kinds of grasslands-oriented initiatives that we need our members' voices in support. And um, it, 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 as few as 10 people in a representative's district will get their attention. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, as few as 10 people in a U.S. representative's district. So if you're listening to this and you live in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul, you can make a difference for Lesser Prairie Chicken. Just pick up the phone, pick up the keyboard, and uh, and help. Uh, particularly if you live in that geography, um, you know, and you're a landowner. No landowner wants to see a, a species go extinct in their backyard. And uh, um, 
kudos to the group of landowners that Ted and the Grouse Partners are working with to, to turn the tide here. Um, this is a species we don't want to go extinct on our watch. Hell no. We want to be able to hunt this species again. Um, let's bring it back. Let's get lesser prairie chicken populations back to a healthy point by doing what's right for the habitat. The bees, the butterflies, beef, and birds will all benefit. For Ron Leathers, Chief Conservation Officer with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and for Ted Cook, Executive Director of North American Grouse Partnership, check it out at grousepartners.org. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.